Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, the 6% commission you have to pay residential real estate brokers is under antitrust scrutiny, and it could threaten to upend the powerful industry. Then, Neil, say it with me, never bet against the American consumer, because retail sales from last month just dropped, and they were way stronger than expected. It's Wednesday, October 18th. Let's ride. Neil, the Phillies won last night, which is a good thing for you and a lot of Philadelphia natives, but it could end up being a bad thing for the American economy. Over the past 100 years, the surest sign of an oncoming financial crisis has been a Philadelphia baseball team winning the World Series. So in 1929, the Athletics won. Great Depression hit. 1980, Phillies won. Recession hit. 2008, Great Recession hit. 2023, the Phillies are currently two games away from the World Series. Recession, question mark, question mark, question mark. Neil, I know you're a Philly fan, but for the greater good of the economy, I'm pulling for their opponents. No, 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 no. <laughs> a Philadelphia parade will in itself stave off a recession. So I'm, I'm 100% behind this team. They're having so much fun. The crowd is going wild. Philadelphia is just loving this right now. And I know that even if a recession comes, it will be short-lived because Philadelphia is just going to spend so much on merch and other things celebrating that we'll jump right back. It's going to be a V-shaped uh, right. V-shaped recovery. You heard it here first. Before we jump into the show, today's episode is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. Neil, so many finance platforms out there are confusing and give you information overload, but Yahoo Finance strikes a great balance of giving real-time market data without going overboard. There is a reason 150 million people visit that site every month, but honestly, the mobile app is a game changer as well. Oh, you're a mobile guy. Totally. It's <laughs> convenient. I got to tailor my push notifications however I like. Plus, it run- runs really well on my Pixel. Oh my gosh, you just had to slide that in there. I mean, enjoy your green text, I guess. You know I will. <laughs> Head to finance.yahoo.com to learn more or download the Yahoo Finance mobile app, my favorite, to get it directly on your phone. We'll get to the business news in a bit, but first, these are tense times in the world, and we want to update you on what's going on in the Middle East. President Biden landed in Tel Aviv this morning for an unusual and dramatic wartime visit to Israel. His goals were to reiterate support for Israel, discuss how to free the nearly 200 hostages that were kidnapped by Hamas, including Americans, solidify a plan to get humanitarian aid to desperate civilians in Gaza, and prevent the Israel-Hamas war from spiraling into a wider conflict. If that weren't high stakes enough, the region was thrown into further chaos after a blast at a hospital in Gaza killed hundreds of people, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. The question quickly turned to what caused the blast. Palestinian health officials claimed an Israeli airstrike was responsible, but Israel's military categorically denied they were behind it and published several pieces of evidence that attempted to show it was a failed rocket launch from the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group. Investigations by multiple governments and media outlets are ongoing to figure out what exactly happened here. But this morning, Biden said based on what he's seen, it was done by, quote, the other team. 
In terms of Biden's visit, the fallout of the blast immediately squandered his push to avoid escalation. Anti-Israel and anti-U.S. protests erupted across the Arab world, and Biden's planned trip to Jordan to meet with Arab leaders was canceled. So the scope of this trip was significantly narrowed. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the historic nature of Biden's visit. With his trip to Israel, he became just the second president to travel internationally to an active war zone that wasn't controlled by the U.S. military. The other president... Also, Joe Biden, when he went to Ukraine last February, despite the risk, Biden hates Zoom calls and feels like he can make more of a diplomatic impact by speaking face to face with Mm -hmm. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. The visit also comes as Biden reportedly plans to ask Congress for a mammoth $100 billion funding package that includes support to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan to beef up its security interests around the world. And speaking of Congress, the House remained without a leader for another day after Jim Jordan failed to get enough votes to win the speakership yesterday another vote is planned for today lots going on we'll make sure to keep tabs on it for you but neil let's move on and i have a question for you what do the 2016 cavaliers our audio quality and the american consumer all have in common They are resilient. They may get beaten down, but boy, do they keep fighting. I want to talk specifically about American consumers, though. The retail sales report dropped yesterday and showed that spending online at stores and at restaurants rose a stronger than expected 0.7% in September. Sounds good, right? Well, in another sign that we are in the weirdest economy ever, this was a kind of good news is bad news moment. Treasury yields jumped towards yearly highs again yesterday as the spending report showed evidence of a still hot economy that could result in higher interest rates for longer. And remember, those elevated rates affect everything from mortgage rates to car loans to credit card borrowing rates. So those ripple effects do be rippling. Neil, I thought it was especially interesting to see where that spending is coming from. Consumers are still Flashing out on big ticket items like cars, as well as at places like restaurants and bars, which has been part of a larger post-pandemic shift towards spending on experiences. Neil, bottom line here, I said at the top of the show, don't bet against the American consumer. <laughs> you sound like Warren Buffett. I know. But I just want to take us back to October 2022. Bloomberg comes out with this article saying its economists predict a 100% chance of a recession within the next year, which was understandable because the Phillies were in, you know, they were about to go to the world. Series and everyone was worried about a recession. But one year later, we couldn't be further from a recession. After this report, you had banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs raising their GDP forecast for Q3 to above 4%. That's not, you know, that's not even close to a recession. That is a booming economy. And this retail sales report only bolstered the the idea that the US economy has been chugging along the recession that had been warned for so long that had been predicted with a hundred percent chance of of happening is not yeah. even close to here. It feels like we've been having these two contrasting narratives constantly, though, because on the one hand, you have economists forecasting a 100% chance for recession, but on the other hand, you have these really strong spending reports. But then also, you kind of have the consumer feeling pretty glum. The consumer confidence index of expectations fell below 80 in September, a level that has historically signaled a recession within the next year. So even though people are literally spending money, they still don't feel confident in the economy. Even though the labor market is still incredibly strong and is powering the spending, people just have this disconnect. And a lot of it could be because 
more higher income spenders are driving most of the yeah. spending, while lower income are pulling back. And companies like Dollar General have called this out. Companies that serve a more lower income bracket are saying, listen, it, we're in a diverging economy right now. So that could be part of the reason why we're seeing these great spending numbers, but people are feeling glum. And another reason why is, you know, Americans had built up such uh, such intense pandemic savings during COVID. And everyone thought, economists had thought that uh, these savings had been depleted. Recent reports found that there were actually hundreds of billions more dollars in saving accounts than we realized. That could also be driving uh, the increased spending levels that we're seeing. I think my bottom line is the, this G, these GDP numbers that are gonna, about to come out are going to blow by expectations. And it's going to show an U.S. economy that is booming. Okay, moving on. Anyone who sold a home in the U.S. is all too familiar with the roughly 6% commission you have to split between your broker and the buyer's broker. But that system could be dismantled and the brokerage industry thrown into chaos as multiple serious legal challenges take aim at what opponents call a blatant violation of antitrust laws that artificially inflate home prices. To understand what their criticisms are, you need to know about the National Association of Realtors, which is one of, if not the, most powerful lobby on Capitol Hill. The National Association of Realtors requires its 1.5 million members to offer compensation to a potential buyer's broker if they want to be listed on a database of homes for sale known as multiple listing services, many of which are controlled by, you guessed it, the National Association of Realtors. So you've got this situation where a 6% commission split by two different brokers has persisted for decades, allegedly thanks to the realtor lobby's monopolistic grip. Even while in peer countries like the UK and Australia, the total commission for on a home sale amounts to just 2%. Two class action lawsuits are targeting this buyer broker commission model and a trial in Missouri kicked off on Monday. But perhaps the biggest threat comes from the DOJ, which is, just, which is deciding on whether to pursue its own case. If it does and destroys the system, half of the nation's real estate agents would go unemployed, Redfin CEO said. Did I set the stakes high enough here? The stakes are high. And again, I just want to call it how powerful the NAR is. Last year, it surpassed the U.S. Chamber of Congress to be the biggest spender on lobbying in the U.S. It laid out more than $80 million in 2022. So this is a very powerful group that is has a interest in maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. of these super high uh, commission fees. And then just to kind of give a sense of how much these eat into when you're trying to buy a home, a $407,000 house, which is the median existing home sales price right now, a 5.5 commission, which splits the difference between 5 and 6%, comes out to $22,390. So that's just another added fee for sometimes you're like your broker doesn't even really do that much for you. So you can see why this is such an annoying part of the home buying process for a lot of people. Yeah, and their opponents of this model point out a blatant conflict of interest where a buyer, you know, there's a buyer is supposed to get the best, a buyer broker is supposed to get the best deal for you. But you know that they're also incentivized to get a higher price because uh, you know their commission kind of depends on it. So there have been studies that show that uh, recently, just last week, that a home that home listings that have less lower commissions are actually less visited and sell and stay on the market for longer. 
than it, than ones with higher commissions, and that kind of exemplifies this conflict of interest that buyers buyer brokers steer their clients away from those particular listings. Yeah, it is just a completely backward system when you really dig into thinking about it. And yeah, it is kind of in a the worst case scenario for the industry is that the government steps in and just bans all of these sharing of commissions, which prohibits both the seller side and the buyer side. So this is a rabbit hole that the NAR does not want the Department of Justice to or the Justice Department to go further down and I could see it just kind of upending the entire as a Redfin CEO said it literally would get rid of half of uh, existing uh, realtors out there so we should mention that the NAR obviously has a response to this and they say that th mm -hmm. say that demolishing the system would send the brokerage industry and the whole home buying and selling process back to the wild west you'd have outdated and inaccurate listing information a buyer would have to go to every single broker in town to see all of the listings because they would be decentralized from mm -hmm these multiple listing services. So they push back that, the, you know, this system works to the buyer's advantage. It actually helps consumers. The uh, the critics of it say that it inflates home prices. I feel like just make the commission 2%. Just bring it in line with the rest of the world. Why are we in the 5, 5 to 6% range? Just bring it down to the 1% to 2% range. That's what I would do. All right, Neil, before we go on talking realtors forever, we're going to take a quick break. Neil, one of the coolest and weirdest parts of this job is that we get to consume a ton of news. So then when we decided to talk about Mark Andreessen's latest manifesto, I was a little nervous because I wasn't sure I had room for 5,000 words from the most famous VC of the modern era to stuff into my brain. But stuff I did. I read every word and now I want to tell you all about it. To set the stage, Mark Andreessen is the founding partner of Andreessen Horowitz, aka A16Z, the venture capital firm best known for investments in Airbnb, Slack, Instacart, Robinhood, Stripe, OpenAI, SpaceX, I could go on. And Mark himself is famous for his broad sweeping essays. He wrote about how software would eat the world back in 2011. That proved to be pretty dang correct. He wrote a now famous essay called It's Time to Build at the Outset of the Pandemic as well. And on Monday, he published the Techno Optimist Manifesto, a 5,000 word piece on why tech is, in his words, the engine of perpetual material creation, growth, and abundance. Neil, this thing reads like a fever dream. The big themes were anti-regulation and the case for accelerationism in its place to mark everything can and will be solved by technology as long as the enemies which he lists as everything from ESG and tech ethics to stagnation in authoritarianism don't get in the way and ruin everything. I could go on and on about Andreessen's various points, but I'll pause there. Neil, what stood out to you? Well, I think the boldest claim here was he was trying to prevent the slowdown of AI development, which has been called for by numerous uh, tech critics and also people in the tech industry. He said that if we slow down AI development, it would it would lead to excess deaths than would be because AI could save lives. And he said that deaths that were preventable by the AI that was prevented from existing is a form of murder. Again, so that I think uh, I think saying slow down in tech progress or putting regulations on tech is a form of murder. 
that that stood out to me. I, yeah, it definitely stood out. And I mean, I think that gives you a sense for just the way he writes. It's very easy to get caught up in his vision. He writes in broad strokes. He writes as if he's giving a speech to a crowd of thousands. But he's kind of very short on specifics and does not give much thought to an alternative vision at all. But I'll admit, I was getting a little caught up with it at, by the end of it because it, he does make a good case for the enemy being stagnation. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we stop innovating, it does feel like kind of like the end of human progress as we know it. So we do have a ton of problems to deal with from climate change to wealth inequality. And it feels really hard to solve those problems if we don't strive and mm-hmm. if, we, if we don't innovate. The perfect example that came to me was the Vesuvius challenge that we just talked about. Remember, that was when people were trying to dig into an old Roman scroll to see the words within. And so many different people from so many walks of life were combining their collective intellect to to uh, accomplish a really incredible thing. So if stagnation were to to hit, they would say, oh, these schools are too bitter or, or too brittle. We don't even want to open them at all versus let's use tech to solve the problem. So that's what came to mind reading yeah, this. Yeah, I think Andreessen uh, suffers from a little bit of lack of nuance. <laughs> yeah. You know, he bashed government, but if you just back up two years, you had Operation Warp Speed, mm-hmm. which was from the government, and that accelerated the development of vaccines, which ended up saving tens of millions of lives for COVID. There's also other really important R&D projects that are spurred by the government. So him hammering the government, you know, you could argue whether the, the you know, government should have its hands off uh, of industry a little bit more or more hands on. But, you know, I think he would present a little more of a convincing argument and win over more people if he acknowledged a little mm-hmm. bit of nuance. But that's not the point of this. I realize the point is to make waves and generate conversation, mm-hmm. which he absolutely has. It's so ironic, too, because Mark was he created one of the first like web browsers out there and he did it while researching at a government funded <laughs> research institution so again yeah he's kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth sometimes but the end result was this rallying cry for tech and this rallying cry for innovation uh, to kind of power humanity forward for the next I decades. would say that uh, a bunch of other tech leaders are kind of at odds with Mark Andreessen just last month we talked about that AI summit at the White House where two AT from Sundar Pichai to Elon Musk to Sam Altman, OpenAI CEO, said that they welcomed regulation of AI because they viewed it as a mm-hmm. more of a threat than Mark Andreessen thinks. Then again, Mark Andreessen, through his A16Z fund, ha- is invested billions of dollars into a bunch of AI companies. So we should also mention he has a financial incentive sure. to uh, to stave off regulation. Moving on to our second to last story. Tell me if you've been in this situation. You board the plane, settle into your aisle seat, and two minutes later, someone lets you know that they have the window seat. So you stand up in the aisle, blocking everyone else from going through the plane so that the person can settle into the window. Finally, someone is trying to fix this. Starting October 26th, United Airlines will implement a boarding process that prioritizes economy class passengers that have a window seat, followed by passengers with middle and aisle seats. The window seaters won't be the first to board the plane. That'll be your typical active duty military, unaccompanied minors, and people with disabilities. And then first class and business class will follow. But when the rest of us plebes are allowed to board, it'll be window seat first in an attempt to speed up the boarding process. It won't be a major change. It's expected to shave off two minutes of boarding time. But an airline at the gate, or an air 
aircraft at the gate is an aircraft not making money. So United thinks this is a tangible way to reduce delays, improve service, and get its airplanes back in the air at a time when demand for air travel is soaring. Are you on board with this, Toby? <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm still recovering from getting called a plebe right now, but I do think that this is a win-win for a lot of people. It's great for airlines. It gets the planes in the air. It's great for uh, people boarding the planes because it goes a little quicker. Although I was a little disappointed. They said that this would save the airline up to two minutes of boarding time. That didn't feel like a ton of time for me. Two minutes. That's just one person with uh, oversized carry-on kind of uh, doing the thing. But think, also, about, think about how many flights airline, uh, United flies a day, and them. it definitely adds up. I'm thinking about it from oh, my just, perspective. Yeah. I was like, two minutes. Like, that's nothing. But, yes, it is good for United. I do think this is a pandemic uh, effect as well because more people than ever are traveling, but business travel has taken a sharp decline, so airlines have kind of been – prioritizing economy passengers for the first time. So this to me is United saying, how can we make the experience a little bit better for the less higher paying customers because we're having more of them and we're having less of these business customers. The best thing you can do with your time is going down the rabbit hole of yeah, science, scientific solutions to the to fastest boarding thing possible because there have been numerous scientific studies done about it. What seems to me to be the best way from what I can gather was devised by astrophysicist Jason Steffen. And what happens is it's an alternating pattern back to front window to aisle, if that makes sense. You get everyone on the right side of the plane, all of the window seaters from back to front, you send them in and they go alternate row so mm -hmm. that allows people to sit down at the same time that is the key you need multiple people sitting down at the same time so once those people all the alternating window seats are in you have the you go to the left side of the plane and do the alternating mm -hmm. window seats over there and then you do the aisle seats you do the or you do the middle seats on the right side middle seats on the left side and then aisle seats right, aisle seats left. And that is the optimized way to board a plane that will be the fastest. That's the optimized way in a fantasy land, though, because <laughs> that is not everyone boards at the same speed. So I did a little research, and I found that through studies from researchers in Norway, Israel, and Latvia, they used a four-dimensional model of space-time to run thousands of simulations. Yeah, Neil, I went deep. And basically, they divided passengers into slow boarders and fast boarders, and they ran four simulations, which was having the slow passengers board first, the fast passengers board first, a randomized boarding in the back to front, which do you think won? Uh, I read the study too. <laughs> it was the slow, it was the slow, you got to put the slow passengers first. Slow passengers go first, even though if you have fast passengers go first, that was ahead for 98% of the simulation, but in the last 2%, that's when the slow passengers really kind of start to clog things up. So what you could take away from this is maybe send the elderly passengers or people with uh, some families families to, to start boarding first because the fast passengers just will come in and fill the space more efficiently. So space time continue. Think about it like sand, filling a jar with sand and rocks you have to put the rocks in first so the sand can fill in the gaps later i this, think that's exactly what you're trying to do yeah this is a great this is a great rabbit hole I yeah love the, the bottom line is anything is better than what we're doing now <laughs> even southwest which does a random uh doesn't even assign seats is faster than mm -hmm. the way that airlines currently do it <sighs> southwest the goat all right our final story today is one that i'm sure everyone can relate to as well an employee at citibank sabalix fekti 
I, I apologize if I pronounced that wrong, went on a work trip and expensed his lunch as one does. He claimed to have consumed two sandwiches, two coffees, and two pasta dishes. Notice I say claims. When the company asked about his expenses, he said he had eaten everything himself. He had saved one of the sandwiches for dinner and drank both coffees as they were very small. But later, the truth came out. He had, as you might have guessed, shared the meal with his partner, then lied about it to his company, who then promptly fired him. He sued for wrongful termination, but on Monday this week, a British judge ruled that the bank was entitled to sack him for gross misconduct because he had lied. So Citibank ended up winning this case. Neil, this set off a bit of an internet firestorm. Should Fekete have been fired, or is this or is Citibank in the right here? First of all, good use of sack. <laughs> Thank you. It's British. Come on. I... This may be unpopular, but I think they were completely in the right. It, you know, the, it, this wasn't about the money. It was less than 100 pounds. This is not, you know, this is not them recouping any lost uh, lost money. This is about trust and having your employee break trust with you. And he completely lied to them in an email. So I think they're fully in the right. I don't think it matters, you know, the dollars and cents. It's just an employee who was not truthful to them and that trust had been broken and they were completely in the right to do it. Yeah. I mean, again, that is what the, the judge said. It wasn't about the sums of money involved, but his failure to make a full and frank disclosure. And this is a relatively common problem. A 2018 report by uh, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners found that expense reimbursement cases account for 21% of fraud in small businesses and 11% in large organizations. And again, it's not the dollars and cents amount, even though it does have a material impact impact. It's more just, it's a slippery slope. If an employee is willing to commit theft in this small expense report, what else are they kind of inclined to do? Could they commit fraud on a larger level? So you can see how uh, employers are not happy about this. I've been around some people that have expensed a lot, uh, that have <laughs> uh -oh. been a lot, expensed a lot shadier things than this, I have to say. Name but names. No, I'm not worry. naming names, but the funniest part of this story to me was that this guy was a financial crime expert. I know. It's, it is ironic. Alright, so I'm sure that will spark a lot of discussion about uh, expenses. But that is a wrap on the show. That's all the time we have. Please have a great Wednesday, everyone. And you can feel free to email us at morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com, but you can only say nice things. Them's the rules. Let's roll the credits. Emily Myron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are our associate producers. Yuchenawa Ogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is being investigated for bogus expense reports. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow. Thank you.